Section 19 of Twain and Howells on Each Other. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. My Mark Twain, Literary Friends and Acquaintances by William Dean Howells. Chapter 18. His memory for favors was as good as for injuries, and he liked to return your friendliness with as loud a band of music as could be bought or bribed for the occasion. All that you had to do was to signify that you wanted his help. When my father was consul at Toronto during Arthur's administration, he fancied that his place was in danger, and he appealed to me. In turn I appealed to Clemens, bethinking myself of his friendship with Grant and Grant's friendship with Arthur. I asked him to write to Grant in my father's behalf, but no, he answered me, I must come to Hartford, and we would go on to New York together and see Grant personally. This was before, and long before, Clemens became Grant's publisher and splendid benefactor, but the men liked each other as such men could not help doing. Clemens made the appointment, and we went to find Grant in his business office, that place where his business innocence was afterwards so betrayed. He was very simple and very cordial, and I was instantly the more at home with him because his voice was the soft, rounded Ohio River accent to which my years were earliest used from my steamboating uncles, my earliest heroes. When I stated my business, he merely said, Oh, no, that must not be. He would write to Mr. Arthur, and he did so that day, and my father lived to lay down his office, when he tired of it, with no urgence from above. It is not irrelevant to Clemens to say that Grant seemed to like finding himself in company with two literary men, one of whom at least he could make sure of, and, unlike that silent man he was reputed, he talked constantly and, so far as he might, he talked literature. At least he talked of John Phoenix, that delightfulest of the early Pacific Slope humorists, whom he had known under his real name of George H. Derby when they were fellow cadets at West Point. It was mighty pretty, as Pepys would say, to see the delicate deference Clemens paid our plain hero, and the manly respect with which he listened. While Grant talked, his luncheon was brought in from some unassuming restaurant nearby, and he asked us to join him in the baked beans and coffee, which were served us in a little room out of the office with about the same circumstance as at a railroad refreshment counter. The baked beans and coffee were of about the railroad refreshment quality, but eating them with Grant was like sitting down to baked beans and coffee with Julius Caesar or Alexander or some other great Plutarchan captain. One of the highest satisfactions of Clemens' often supremely satisfactory life was his relation to Grant. It was his proud joy to tell how he found Grant about to sign a contract for his book on certainly very good terms, and said to him that he would himself publish the book, and give him a percentage three times as large. He said Grant seemed to doubt whether he could honorably withdraw from the negotiation at that point, but Clemens overbore his scruples, and it was his unparalleled privilege, his princely pleasure, to pay the author a far larger check for his work than had ever been paid to an author before. He valued even more than this splendid opportunity the sacred moments in which their business brought him into the presence of the slowly dying 
heroically living man whom he was so befriending, and he told me in words which surely lost none of their simple pathos through his report how Grant described his suffering. The prosperity of this venture was the beginning of Clemens' adversity, for it led to excesses of enterprise which were forms of dissipation. The young sculptor who had come back to him from Paris modeled a small bust of Grant, which Clemens multiplied in great numbers to his great loss, and the success of Grant's book tempted him to launch on publishing seas where his bark presently foundered. The first and greatest of his disasters was the life of Pope Leo Thirteenth, which he came to tell me of, when he had imagined it, in a sort of delirious exultation. He had no words in which to paint the magnificence of the project, or to forecast its colossal success. It would have a currency bounded only by the number of Catholics in Christendom. It would be translated into every language which was anywhere written or printed. It would be circulated literally in every country of the globe, and Clemens' book agents would carry the prospectuses, and then the bound copies of the work to the ends of the whole earth. Not only would every Catholic buy it, but every Catholic must, as he was a good Catholic, as he hoped to be saved. It was a magnificent scheme, and it captivated me, as it had captivated Clemens. It dazzled us both, and neither of us saw the fatal defect in it. We did not consider how often Catholics could not read, how often, when they could, they might not wish to read. The event proved that, whether they could read or not, the immeasurable majority did not wish to read the life of the Pope, though it was written by a dignitary of the Church and issued to the world with every sanction from the Vatican. The failure was incredible to Clemens. His sanguine soul was utterly confounded, and soon a silence fell upon it where it had been so exuberantly jubilant. End of chapter 18